As we start our sermon today, we're going to be continuing our series on prayer. The last three, four weeks now, we've been learning about prayer. For three weeks, we went through Luke chapter 11, and we looked at some of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Today, I'd like to move to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we're going to look at one of the prayers of David. It's actually one of seven prayers that David prayed that are known as penitential prayers. A prayer of penitence is a prayer that expresses sorrow over sin. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalms chapter 51. Psalms chapter 51, and we will look at David's prayer of penitence. Give you a second to turn there. If your Bible is like mine, as you go to Psalm 51 underneath of the chapter, title, and number, there's probably a heading before verse 1. In my Bible, the heading says, To the chief musician, a song of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him, and he had gone into Bathsheba. Apart from understanding what David's sin was, it's kind of hard to truly understand the weight of Psalm 51. So before we jump into our text, I just want to go back with you to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David at the prime of his life. David is the king of Israel. He is the commander of the army. As we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that things are going so well for Israel and for David. The Bible says that at a time when the kings would normally be out in battle, David was at home, sitting on his throne with his feet kicked up, eating grapes and cheese, not worried about anything in the world. In 2 Samuel 11, we see that as David is at home one morning, he goes to his rooftop. And as he's standing there on that rooftop, scanning and looking at the beauty of Jerusalem, another beauty catches his eye. And he looks and looks over the way, and he sees a woman in all her glory that's bathing. And David looks at his friend, and he goes, hey, man, who's she? And his friend says, oh, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And David starts to conceive this plan in his mind. He starts to think, man, I like what I see. Uriah's at war right now. He's not home. I'm sure she's lonely. So David tells his friend, go over to Bathsheba's house and tell Bathsheba to come over here. So David's friend goes and grabs Bathsheba brings him back to David's palace, and we see in 2 Samuel 11 that David sleeps with, Bath with Bathsheba. And imagine a few weeks later, David's probably forgot all about the ordeal, not even on his conscience when he gets a message from Bathsheba. Bathsheba says, David, I'm late. He's like, late on what? He said, I'm pregnant. And David, now, you can probably imagine the horror running through David's mind. He has not only committed adultery with one of the men of his army, but he has impregnated his wife. David's probably freaking out, and in his freaking out, he does what often 
we do when we get caught in our sin, he commits more sin. As we look through 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that David goes on a rapid downward spiral from adulterer to deception to murder. As he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle in order that Uriah would be killed so that David could conceal his sin. We then, in chapter 11, we see that with Uriah dead, David takes Bathsheba as his wife and the baby is born. Then coming into chapter 12, as the baby is born, I'm sure that David has been, at least nine months have passed since David's sin. So probably nine months to a year have passed. I'm sure David probably feels as if he has literally and figuratively gotten away with murder. And then as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan the prophet rebukes and exposes the sin that David has committed. After a year of running from God, David finally has to come to grips with the sin in his life. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, the Bible says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This brings us to our text this morning, as in Psalms 51, we see after David's finding out that he now prays to God for forgiveness and restoration. Listen, it took nine months and a prophet for David to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. And, and while this message is not about 2 Samuel chapter 12, I do think there's a couple of principles that we can glean from that. The first is that your sin will always find you out. And the second thing, as I just look at that account of David and Nathan, I'm reminded that there are times in our lives when God may use somebody to expose sin in our life. And rather than growing angry and bitter and upset with those people, look at that as God's grace extended towards us that draws us back to repentance. Rather than going to God with his sins, David thought that he could hide and conceal his sins from God. Just, just think about how crazy of an idea that is. Yet so often we fall into the same trap. You know, as I, as I think of David trying to hide his sins from God, I, but the picture comes to my mind of a child that's playing hide and seek. And little kids, when they play hide and seek, a lot of times they'll try to hide behind a lamppost. Or, you know, they'll try to hide, you know, try to hide behind something like this. And it's like, you know, in their mind, you have no idea where they're at. In their mind, they're hiding from you, they're concealed, yet they're right there in the open. And the same is true with our sins before God. That when we try to hide our sins from God, we're just like a kid that's hiding behind a lamp. You know, also I know there's times when kids will close their eyes because if they can't see you, you can't see them, right? And we'll do the same thing with God with that as well. We will turn from God, we'll run from God. God, if I can't see you, then you can't see the sin in my life. I'm going to read Psalm 51. It's quite a few verses, but that's okay. Hey, listen, we need to read the Bible. So if you would just follow with me, I'm going to read through the whole chapter. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the, and in the hidden part you will make, know, make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness at the bones which thou hast broken, and rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your free spirit. Then I will teach transgressions your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good in your pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bullocks upon thine altar. As we dive into this text this morning, I want you to just know that there's, there's going to be a lot of familiar themes, a lot of familiar ideas that really we've been talking about the last few months. Um, you know, it said that there's a scarlet thread with the hope of the gospel that is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. W.A. Griswold says it this way. He says that if you open the Bible and cut any verse with a sword, that it will bleed Christ. So rather than closing me out this morning, I just want you to hang with me and open your hearts to be reminded of the truths of the gospel. You know, at, at a church, at the last church I was at, one lady told the pastor, verbatim, she told the pastor, as a complaint, all you ever do is preach about Jesus. Listen, if your complaint against me is that I go back to the gospel too much, you might want to have somebody else preach. Because that's what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about restoration and deliverance. As we look at the text this morning, I just want to share one simple truth. Simple but powerful truth with you. And that truth is that there is good news for the guilty. And the good news is that there is grace and forgiveness on the other side of our sin. So as we look at David's prayer this morning, I want to answer the question, what do I do when I have fallen? If you would, just pray with me real quick and then we'll jump into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day that you've given us this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and declare, thus saith the Lord. God, I pray that you would use me as an empty vessel, that you would help me to get out of the way, Lord, and that your word would convict and rebuke and transform and bring hope to those who are in here this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that does not know you as Savior, that they would come to that saving knowledge of you. I pray that you would just give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that your word would bring conviction of heart. Christ, let me pray. Amen.
I believe it was Vince Lombardi who was known for the saying, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. And the same is true in our Christian walk. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to fail. You're going to fall into sin. You're going to give in to temptation. But what matters is that when you fail and you fall and you miss the mark, that you continue to get back up. Listen, there's going to be a time in every one of our lives where we will need to make a motion for clemency to God. There will be a time in each and every one of our lives when we are going to fail and we are going to, just like David, need to cry out to God for mercy. Look at verse 1 with me. In verse 1, in verse 1, David starts by saying, Have mercy upon me, O God. Listen, as we begin, notice that the first thing that we do when we fall is run to God. Have mercy upon me, O God. Mercy is when we deserve something, yet it's withheld from us. David begins by saying, listen, God, I know that because of my sin, I know that because of my adultery, because of my murdering, that I deserve judgment, that I deserve wrath, that I deserve punishment. But he says, Lord, withhold that punishment from me. But what I love about it is that David doesn't say, Lord, withhold your punishment from me, because remember all that I've done for you. He doesn't say, Lord, remember when I had the faith to slay Goliath, Lord, remember when I led your children, think about how good of a king I have been. No, David doesn't plead for mercy on behalf of himself, but we see that he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. <clears throat> according to your loving kindness. Listen, it's not because of David's goodness that God is willing to extend mercy. It's not because of our goodness that God is willing to extend mercy, but it's because of God's. David begins his plea on the basis of who God is. He says, Lord, not only are you merciful, but then look at the back half of chapter one. He says, according to your love, to your loving kindness, your unfailing love, have mercy. But not only that, he says, according to the multitude of your mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David knows that God is compassionate. He knows that God is loving kindness, that his love will never fail. He knows that God is merciful, that God is gracious. And so when David falls into sin, though it took some time, eventually he got to the point where he ran to the only one who could do anything about it. You know, religion says, I messed up. I got to hide from God. But the gospel says, I messed up. I've got to run to God. You know, I believe that it's true that in the innermost parts of us, we all at times feel like because of our sin, we need to hide from God. And, and I think that's because we, we do. We understand the seriousness of our sin. We understand that because of our sin, that there is shame and guilt that is brought upon us. And, and we're scared to take that shame and guilt to the Lord. We're scared to take our failures to God. You know, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes that there's nothing new under the sun. And the same thing is true with that shame and guilt that we hold when we, when we fail and we fall into sin. Even if you look back at the creation account in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned, you look, the first thing that they did was hide from God. You know, we should be ashamed of our sins. 
We should feel guilty for what we've done. But understand that the experience of battling your sins, the experience of shame and guilt, is not a sign of failure in your life. But rather, it's a normal experience of the authentic Christian life. I was reading that with a diseased appendix, that as long as that appendix hurts, there's hope for renewal. The danger period comes when that pain in that appendix has stopped. Because oftentimes that means that, 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 means that the appendix has burst and now poison has started to flood throughout the body. It's the same thing with our sin. Be glad when in your sin your conscience hurts. Be glad that, that, that there is conviction for your wrongdoing, there's conviction for your failures, because that conviction leads to repentance. Listen, while we should feel shame, we should feel guilt, while that is healthy, we should not allow our shame and guilt to draw us away from God. But rather, we take that shame and guilt and we lay it at the feet of Jesus because of who he is, because he is a compassionate father, because we have a loving God, because we have one who already paid the price for all of our sins. You don't have to hold on to that shame. You don't have to hold on to that guilt, but take it to God. Listen, when we fall, we acknowledge the goodness of God. We put God in his rightful place. We know that he is the only one who is able to extend mercy. He is the only one who gives grace to overcome that sin. But then we also confess the depravity of ourselves. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. David says, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. Confess the depravity of ourselves. Our, our depravity is, is our, moral, our, our, our moral corruption that resides inside of us. Because of sin, we are depraved. There is wickedness that is inside of us. And so as we fall on the way to repentance, on the way to forgiveness, we have to acknowledge and confess that. Listen, David blames nobody else but himself. And look, in verse 3 he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions. Listen, David doesn't say, Well, God, I'm sorry, but Bathsheba knew what she was doing. You know, she knew that I was going to be on the roof. She knew I was going to be looking. You know, if she wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have fallen. No, David doesn't say, Lord, if I had a real friend, he would have never went over there and fetched her for me. He doesn't get mad at Uriah. You know, well, if Uriah just would have came back and just would have spent the night with her, none of this would have been an issue. But instead, David takes personal responsibility for his sins. He owns the sins of his life. He acknowledges that he is the one who has messed up. Listen, this is a lesson for us that, that we've got to stop blaming everybody else. Stop blaming our situation. Stop blaming our circumstances for when we fall, for when we sin before God. Listen, stop blaming your generational trauma for why you sin. Just because you work with hard-to-love people doesn't mean that it's okay to harbor hatred in your heart. Listen, my question for you this morning is do you understand the depths of your sin? Do you understand the seriousness 
of your sins? Do you take personal responsibility for your sins or are you constantly pointing your finger at everybody else? You know, the Bible says that even our good deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. So if our good deeds are filthy rags, how much worse are our bad ones? You know, we live in a society where we don't even like the word sin, and we don't even call things sin anymore because we have so normalized them. We have so made them a part of who we are, a part of what we do, and we don't call sin sin anymore. You know, it's not sin, it's just a little white lie, right? It's not sin, you know, we live in a sex positive culture where there is no sexual sin. Even for Christians, believe this lie. We live in a society that says, well, we're going to live together just to make sure that we're compatible. And listen, we live in a society, I'm guilty of this myself, where gluttony is rampant. According to scripture, gluttony is a sin. To indulge in food is a sin. Yet we justify it. It was so good, right? Listen, I'm guilty of this myself. Listen, we normalize and we justify everything that we do. Uh, some of you may remember a few years ago, probably some of the younger guys, the, there was a, a song called YOLO. And uh, YOLO, it's an acronym, Y-O-L-O, and it stands for You Only Live Once. And the thing is, that is, while that is true, the message behind it was the message of the world. That because you only live once, live and meet the desires of your heart. Because you only have one life to live, live the way that you want to live. And you know, as Christians, we should be living your own lives also. But our goal should be, I only live one time, so I'm going to use my life to honor God. I'm going to use my life to glorify God. I only get one chance on this earth, so I'm going to strive to be holy. I'm going to strive to be Christ-like. I'm going to kill sin in my life. Listen, you're only going to begin to feel the weight of your sin when you recognize the one who your sin is against. In verse 4, David says, against thee, Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You know, while David did wrong against Bathsheba, he did. While he did wrong against Uriah, he had him murdered. David understands that ultimately, at the end of the day, every last one of our sins are against God Almighty. That at the end of the day, it's the heart of God, the one who created David, the one who sustains David, that he is broken when he falls into sin. You know, as we think of doing sinful things, as we commit sinful acts, or maybe even as we dwell on times when we mess up in our past, I think the question we need to start asking ourselves is, what would God think about this? How will this make God feel? You know, I, I can die, you know, I probably have reasons that I can justify it, but can this be justified before God? It's just a little white lie, but does God feel that it's just a little white lie or is it just a lie? You know, in verse 3 through 4, David shows us the true pattern of confession. The word confession literally means to say the same thing. If you were to confess to a crime, if you were to be in court and confess to a crime, what you are doing is agreeing 
with whatever the judge has presented before you. You're saying, Your Honor, yes, I did that. In the same way as we stand before God, in order to truly confess our sins, we've got to come to grips. We've got to understand and agree with God on how terrible our sins are. We've got to say the same things about our sins that God says about our sins. We've got to say that our sins are repulsive, that our sins are worthy of judgment, that our sins are, are just terrible, terrible, nasty things that God wants nothing to do with. Listen, when we fall, we are to acknowledge the goodness of God. We have a merciful God. We have a gracious God. We have a God that is willing and able to forgive and restore. Acknowledge his goodness. Go to him. Run to him. Lord, have mercy on me. Confess your sins. Understand the seriousness of your sin. Agree with what God has to say about your sin. Stop justifying your sin. Stop trying to point fingers at everybody else. And as you acknowledge the goodness of God, as you confess your sins, believe that God will offer Forgiveness. I'm going to jump down to verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. The Bible says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I personally believe that verse 7 is the greatest verse in this whole text. As we look at verse 7, what we see is that when we confess our sins to God, that God offers forgiveness in totality. That God gives us complete forgiveness for our sins. You know, as humans, often I say this myself, and I think it's, there's wisdom in it, but we say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Well, thankfully, unlike us, when we confess our sins, God is not willing only to forgive, but God is willing to forget. Horatio Spafford, he's a hymn writer. He understood this when he, heard, when he penned the words, to it is well with my soul. I'm sure that most of us in here know this hymn. In this hymn, listen, he says, my sin or the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Listen, God has the only detergent that is able to clean the stain of sin in your life. For those of us that may have been rough kids growing up, maybe have a couple of rough kids growing up that are growing up, we know how powerful and stubborn a grass stain can be in, the, in an item of clothing. When our kid has fallen and they have grass stains in their jeans, oftentimes we'll scrub those grass stains, we'll throw them in the washer, we'll throw them in the dryer. And as we take them out the dryer, it's revealed to us that the stain is still there. No matter how hard you try to get rid of it, the clothing item may be clean, but there is still a blemish on it that testifies of the carelessness of the child. Now, as those of us who have actually lived life know, there is lasting impact of sin in our life. There are scars that we're going to carry. There are things that will show the sin that we have struggled with in our life to other people. But when God forgives you, he washes you 
whiter than snow. While other people may see the stains of our life, when God looks at you as you confess your sins to him, as you run to him in repentance, he cleanses you of any and all blemishes and stains. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of what? All unrighteousness. H.B. Charles, he's a uh, preacher. He says, God washes black sin with red blood and makes you snow white. You know, for the truly penitent, for the one who is truly sorrowful over their sin, there's not only a desire for pardon, there's not only a desire to be forgiven, but there's also a desire for purity. There's a desire to be made new again. That's that mercy and grace. Mercy, God withholds the punishment that is due to us. Lord, pardon me. Lord, forgive me. Grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. Lord, I don't deserve to be made new. I don't deserve to be made clean. I don't deserve to be restored. But God, I'm asking that of you. God, don't only pardon me, but give me purity. As we look at verse 7, not only does David want to be washed white as snow, but he prays to be purged with hyssop. To understand what this text is saying, you've got to go back to Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to, you can I'm going to turn your Bibles, I'm going to read you a few verses from Exodus chapter 12 real quick. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 23, the Bible says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. In Exodus 12, we see the last plague that, that God sent to the Egyptians as they held the Israelites in captivity. And this plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God tells Moses to tell the people to take blood and put it on your doorpost. And as I come through camp, as I see that blood, I'm going to pass over. I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill the firstborn that is there. And listen, hyssop was the plant that was used to, that, that was dipped into the Passover lamb's blood that was used to apply it to the door frame. So according to Mosaic law, David deserved the death penalty. And David knew this. So in his prayer of repentance for mercy, David is saying, Lord, apply the blood of the sacrificial lamb that your wrath would pass over me. Purge me with his Listen, for those of us who are on the other side of the cross, as we look at this verse, we should swell up with, with passion. We should shout for joy as we are reminded of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, let me remind you that the only reason that our confession brings forgiveness, the only reason that we can be made right with God both relationally and in fellowship 
is that our sin has been purged with the blood of Jesus. Forgiveness is free to us, but it cost Jesus everything. We are forgiven because of what he has done, not because of our prayers. We're not forgiven because we cry tears, but we are forgiven because of the cross of Calvary. We are forgiven because as we call upon the name of the Lord, rather than seeing the sin in us, as God looks at you, he sees his son. Confession and repentance bridge the gap between our sin and God's grace. To get from our sin to God's grace requires confession. It requires to agree with what God says about sin and it requires repentance to turn from that sin. As we move forward, I'm going to quickly just go through verses 8 through 12 together. Verses 8 through 12, we just see David um, expounds upon the effects that sin has had in his life. In verse 8, David says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Listen, in verse 8, David says, My sin has affected me physically. He says, my bones have been broken, they groan, and they ache. If you were to read Psalms 32, Psalms 32 is the sequel to Psalms 51. In Psalms 32, David says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. Listen, what David is saying in verse 8 is that if you don't deal with your sin, your sin will deal with you. In verse 10, look at verse 10 with me, he says, create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, not only did my sin affect me physically, but my sin affected me spiritually. He says, my heart was muddied. My spirit was wrong. David longs to be restored. He longs to be renewed. He says, create in me, make new a clean heart. This sinful, nasty heart is unclean, Lord. I want a clean heart, Lord. He longs for restoration. In verse 11, we see that sin affects our fellowship with God. Look at the first part of verse 11. David says, cast me not away from thy presence. David knew that because God is holy, because God is just, because God is righteous, that when he is in sin, there is a distance that is put between him and the Lord. And David says, Lord, as you forgive me, Lord, cast me not away from your presence. He says, Lord, stay near to me. He knows that sin affects our fellowship with God. And then he see, we see in the back half of verse 11 that sin affects our ministry. It affects the calling that God has on our life. In verse 11, in the back half of verse 11, David says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, as you read this, understand that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not, um, it was not given to all believers. But rather, the Holy Spirit was specially given by God as a, as a mark on the life of certain people that showed that God's hand was in their life. David would have known that in 1 Samuel, that the Holy, when, when Saul was anointed king, the Holy Spirit was given to him. Yet in 1 Samuel 16, when Saul was in sin, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. And David would have known that Saul was his predecessor. And what David is saying to God 
is, Lord, don't take your hand off my life. Lord, allow me to remain king. Lord, don't take the calling that you've given me. Lord, forgive me, restore me, Lord. Allow me to continue to serve you. In verse 12, we see that his sin affected him emotionally. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. What this tells me is that David's sin had robbed his joy. I'm sure some of us in here have been there before. I know I have. At times when you are far from God and life is miserable. Verse 14, we see that his sin affects him mentally. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Listen, we already talked about it, but your sin brings guilt. Your sin brings shame. That guilt and shame, well, if you do not deal with it, once again, will deal with you. It will weigh down on you. It will bring a burden on you that you don't have to carry. That is why we take it and place it at the feet of Jesus. Nevertheless, while sin makes us guilty, while sin makes us broken, while sin brings us far from God in these same verses, we also understand that repentance can renew you. Repentance can restore you. Repentance can deliver you. And repentance brings back your joy. As we move on, look at verses 13 and 15 with me. I want you to notice how restoration results in rejoicing. Look at verse 13. David says, then, he says, if you restore me, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. In verse 14, he says, if you deliver me, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. In verse 15, he says, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Restoration results in rejoicing. Listen, this is a common theme all throughout Scripture. From David to Moses, to those who were healed by Jesus, to the prodigal son, we see that when you have been restored, when you have been renewed, when you have had a new heart and a new being created, that you naturally praise God. You glorify God in yourself, but you also glorify God to others. You testify of what God has done. You tell them about how good God has been to you, that even when you're an adulterer, even when you're a murderer, even you were whatever sin that you're dealing with in life, even though you deserve wrath, that, that you deserve judgment, that God was willing and able to forgive you and restore you, tell them of his goodness. Before we end, I want to just look at two more verses from this passage, chapter 16. And 17. And just, just hang with me just for a couple more, more minutes. I really want us to zone in and, and really take these next two verses in. Look at verse 16 and 17. The Bible says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, no sign will give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering, but sacrifice of God for a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As we come to verse 16 and 17, David really brings us full circle back to where he started. God offers forgiveness through restoration, but because of the seriousness of our sin, there needs to be a seriousness 
and our repentance. I believe that verse 16 and 17 are really the key to forgiveness. And that key that we are given to unlock the gates of forgiveness is a broken heart. You know, you can offer sacrifices. David said, the Lord doesn't want sacrifices. I can do a ritual. I can offer sacrifices. I can pray a prayer. I can even cry tears and not even mean what I said. I can put on a show and not truly be sorry for the sin in my life. What David is saying in verses 16 and 17 are beware of cheap confession. If you look at 2 Corinthians 7.10, the Bible tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's not just mere lip service. It's not just, oh, I messed up again. Lord, forgive me. But rather, it is a posture of brokenness before the Lord that you've broken his heart, that you've gone against his will for your life. It's a sorrow that takes responsibility. A sorrow that understands the death of your sin. Listen, worldly sorrow says, God, I'm sorry because I got caught. Godly sorrow says, God, I'm sorry because I broke your heart. Listen, when sin has broken you, you're in a good place. Because brokenness leads to breakthrough. When we fall, it is through brokenness that we seek God. Listen, when we fall, it is through brokenness that we confess our sins. And our sins are not only able to be forgiven, but we are able to get back up, restored. In closing, there are a few things that I hope that we walk away with this morning as we just take in this text of Psalm 51. The first thing I just want us to take in is that maybe we need to stop throwing away everybody that's fallen into sin. You know, God's not done with them. When you fall into sin, God's not done with you. So why are we so quick to cast people that have fallen? Why are we so quick to push them away and to want nothing to do with them? Listen, when you look at the biblical record, what would the church be if it was not for people who had been restored? David hid from God. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied God. Yet we know that as we look at scripture that they are heralded as heroes of the faith. In fact, in fact if you go to Acts chapter 13, in Acts 13 verse 22, Luke writes... That David was a man after God's own heart. Listen, Luke knew the sins that David had. Luke knew how David messed up. But Luke also knew that David's sins did not define who David was. And in the same way, your sins do not define who you are. They don't have to. You can be defined by Jesus Christ when you confess your sins, when you repent of your sins and you ask for forgiveness. Listen, we're all crack containers. I got cracks all in me. But the good news is that our weaknesses show others how strong God is. And then secondly, there may be some in here today who need a breakthrough in your life. 
who because of sin in your life, you've hidden like David, you've lost your joy, maybe you feel far from God. I don't know, maybe there's some things in your life that you need to take to God. I heard one preacher say, he said, you know, some of you are paying for counseling. And not there's anything wrong with counseling. What you're paying for counseling and what you need to do is get on your knees. You know, maybe there's some anger in your heart that's unresolved. Maybe there is a relationship, whether it's family or friends, that needs to be made right. Maybe there's an addiction that you're battling. Maybe you have a struggle with lying. I said, I don't know what it is. It's not for me to know, but we all know what we struggle with in our life. And there are things that we struggle with that, again, it doesn't matter what it is. We can know that God offers breakthrough, that God offers forgiveness for whatever sin that may be. And then maybe there's somebody in here who doesn't even know God or Savior. What you need to do is repent of your sins, not repent of your sins, put full faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Listen, Jesus loves you so much that he died on a cross, bearing the weight of your sin, taking the wrath of God upon himself, dying the death that you deserved, and now he's just waiting for you to call upon him, to put your faith and trust in him, that you can not only be restored in fellowship, but your relationship with God can be restored, that you can be made right with God. Think of that. We fleshly, broken, sinful humans have the opportunity to be made right with God. You know, we've got to learn to develop a lifestyle of repentance. You know, rather than letting everything pile up in your life and then eventually when things get so bad, you go to God and you have this whole laundry list of sins in your life that you've had to deal with. Learn to, whenever the Spirit convicts you, to deal with your sin right then and there. Develop a habit, develop a lifestyle of, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me, Lord, restore me. You know, Proverbs 28, 13 tells us, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Listen, I'm going to tell you, the tag of today's message is Hope in the Dark. The title for today's message, Hope in the Dark. Listen, we have hope because we have a Father who is willing and able to forgive and restore no matter how dark our situation, no matter how far from God we've gotten, no matter what we've done, no matter what others say about us, no matter what we say about ourselves, there is forgiveness and there's restoration on the other side of your sin. Every head bow, every eyes closed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the day you've given to us this morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move throughout this.